Welcome to the family of God. Kind of creepy, isn't it? If you aren't familiar with Christianity. But the church, according to God's word, is very much a family. And that idea, church as a family, is even more weird given today's church culture, where church is not seen as really distinct from any other group meeting in any other place. So church isn't much different, according to some, of, let's say, people gathering together at the senior center, a college class, or a group that you regularly see at Starbucks, or the Starbucks that I go to. I see the same folks sometimes about four days a week. But according to scripture, the church is to be a family, whether we think of it as that way or whether we feel like it is that way. And of course, we are a family, not because we share the same ancestry or anything like that. We in the church are bonded together, not by blood or heritage or ethnicity or even affinity. Fundamentally, we are bonded because we share the same savior. And if there is to be any talk about being bonded by the same blood, by the same blood, it's because we all fall underneath those of us who believe in the gospel. We fall underneath the blood of Jesus Christ. It is he that saves us from our sin. And when he saves us, he doesn't just save us and say, OK, live the Christian life on your own. He saves us and says, live the Christian life in the church, in a family. And our passage today found in first Timothy, chapter five, verses one to 16 speaks of some of these familial responsibilities. You can go ahead and turn there now. First Timothy five verses one to 16. We continue in our series through the book of first Timothy, which was a letter written by the apostle Paul around the mid sixties to a young disciple and young pastor named Timothy. And Timothy was to steer the church in a good direction in a right direction by preaching the gospel and then encouraging the church to live in a way that accords with it. Part of what that included was the church's ministry to disadvantaged Christians, to widows. And that's what we look at today. And for us as a church, keep in mind here, we have widows in our congregation. We also have women who've been divorced and find themselves in similar predicaments that a widow would. Not only that, but, but there are folks, many of us here, I've counted, walked through the church directory, there are many of us here whose mothers are widows, some whose fathers are widowers. So what we see here, it concerns us all. And it's not going to take you very long before you find someone whom this passage here uh, directly affects, whose mother might be a widow or who is a widow. For our outline, we ask and begin to answer two questions. The first is, if you're taking notes, what is your obligation to the widows in your family? You ever wondered that? What is the ob your obligation to the widows in your family? And then number two, what is the church's obligation to the widows in the congregation? So that's our outline today. I'll go ahead and read the entire passage. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household 
and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse, worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing widow has relatives for who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, some of y'all might be thinking, I came to church to hear about widows. Yes, you did. <laughs> we preach through scripture. So when scripture is talking about widows, we're going to talk about widows. Scripture talks about the sojourner. We're going to talk about the sojourner. And so we do that today as we simply walk through the book of First Timothy. Uh, and this is an important topic because it tells us how we as Christians are to love one another. Here, really, the love is zeroed in on one particular group, namely the widows. And then we can expand that to other groups here, logically, practically. Those who have been divorced, let's say, and find themselves in a similar predicament. We can also think about widowers. We can think about the disadvantaged. We, we can multiply category, categories, many of them. Um, so let's just dive into the outline here. Um, point number one, what is your responsibility in caring for widows in your family? It's easy to acknowledge that today in American modern culture, there are many who struggle to understand even a concept of family obligation. Honor thy father and mother resembles more like the 1950s than the 2010s. And speaking frankly, today, many people think of the elderly, if we're going to think about elderly widows, many people think of the elderly like they would an unwanted fetus. If it's an inconvenience, we can take it or leave it. We have to acknowledge that this is somewhat, maybe very much so, the culture that we live in. But regardless of the culture, whether today or the 1950s, the church's culture is to be set by God himself. God himself. And this is a culture of love, provision, and sacrifice. It's to be a family. So you see there in verses one and two, it says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So as he moves, what's been going on here is Paul encourages Timothy to think about what, what successful ministry looks like as he ministers to the church. He says, you command and teach these things, namely the gospel truths. We are a pillar and buttress of truth. 
And then he changes here towards basically overseeing various ministries. And as he does that, he says, look, remember your family obligations. Now, when he says don't rebuke an older man, it doesn't mean that he isn't at all to do that. But it's when he does that, he's supposed to exhort him like a father. The, the, the older women that you, Timothy, are going to deal with, think of them as mothers as you, as you teach them and interact with them. The, young, the younger men, think of them like you would a brother that you want to cultivate and see raised up in the faith. You're going to give yourself to him. And younger sisters, he's already talking about sexual purity. So he says here, he reminds them, do not take advantage of those women, but treat them as sisters in all purity, like you would your sister, your very own physical sister. So here we see he's reminded, he's reminded here of all the family obligations that goes on in a family that, um, you know, once again, many cultures here sort of dispense with. But at the same time, many of us come from cultures where family is everything. And we might, we might come from cultures where that is so in a bad and idolatrous way. But I'm guessing those cultures, those of us who come from those cultures, we might know more about what it looks like here to live in the first century and to live as God calls us to live. So you see how both, both sides have problems? You look at the modern Western understanding of family, really there is no obligation. You look over here and many of us come from cultures where everything or what ought to be life is all family obligation. Both have challenges. Here God is saying, well, what ought to bind the people in the church? Family obligations, people underneath, not our own physical blood or lineage, but underneath the blood of Jesus. That's the definition here. Um, and you see there in verse three, he says, honor, honor widows who are truly widows. So again, he's writing to Timothy as he oversees a ministry. Honor widows who are truly widows. And then he gets to our own personal obligations. This point number one. Your responsibility in caring for the widows in your family. Um, and that's what the, pri the primary responsibility falls on you. Ultimately, you. The widow's own Christian family. Look there in verse four. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that is the children and grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household. And to make some return to their parents. So the argument is, as Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, look, I want the church to take care of widows. But let's figure out who a widow indeed is. That's what he means by truly a widow. He's not really saying those who have lost husbands are not, by definition, a widow. He's saying, let's find out who the truly needy widows are, the, the, the widows indeed. And he says, look, if they have family, let them, that is the family, first take care of them, take care of their own before the church takes them on you know throughout scripture god's people whether it be individual or group they were to be known for taking care of the disadvantaged the widows the orphans the sojourner the foreigners why we read deuteronomy chapter 10 the reason why is because we have god as our father and if god is our father and he produces these offspring of course not physical offspring here we are children spiritually. We too are to walk in his way. So, so the book of Psalms, for example, says this about God. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Beautiful, isn't it? That God is a God who actually cares about something like that. 
And so we as his children ought to grow in our ability to care like he cares, defend others like God defends others, to grow in justice like he carries out justice. And we're supposed to walk in his footsteps, caring for the helpless and destitute. You know, we talked to, we had a meeting with uh, the Department of Children and Family Services to figure out, is there a way we wanted to explore, is there a way where we as a church could be partnering with the disadvantaged? And um, the representative was really excited because he said, you know what, without a doubt, Christians here, at least in Southern California, are more involved than those who are not. Or the irreligious, for example. And I took that as evidence of God's kindness. That even this person who I didn't get any sense that he was a Christian, he was able to recognize that churches want to be more involved than those who don't care about something like religion or something like that. That's the evidence here of God's kindness. And we too are to follow in the Lord's footsteps, the one who watches over the foreigner, sustains the fatherless and the widow. You know, as we go through the rest of this chapter, I want you guys to run a diagnostic test. Are your markers for this trait, caring for widows, the disadvantaged, are they high? As you run this diagnostic, think about that. Um, Now, I think Paul is particularly addressing Christian children loving their Christian parent. But again, this principle can be applied to other, other places. The widowed mom or the grandma, whether they are believer or not, I think this applies. Um, again, those maybe who have been divorced and left alone, this I think here applies here. Do you have a heart even for this type of thing? Do you have any affection at all to see those folks here that you're sitting next to in the pew as family? And then, of course, as you think about your own family, is there any affection at all? Now, again, don't be surprised if your markers aren't high. Again, our culture doesn't know how to value life in its beginning. So we are more than a little fuzzy on what it looks like to value life towards its end. The good thing is that God calls us to learn. Did you see that there in the passage? God calls us to learn. Let them first learn. That's hope, right? Because when I run my diagnostic, I do. I am able to say I love my dad. I love my mom. But here, this shows me that I'm, I'm to learn to do this so much more. Well, then we have to ask the question, well, what are we supposed to learn? What is it that we are supposed to grow in knowledge and skill through study and practice? Let's run this diagnostic. First, we are supposed to learn uh, to show godliness to your household. And then secondly, to make a return to your parents. Those are the two things specifically that he commands um, the church there. This was to be read to the church to grow in. So first they are to show godliness to their own families. We've seen this word godliness before in this letter. Paul brings it up over and over and over again, actually in First Timothy. And this word is associated with reverence and honor. It's something that the Christian was to train himself for as they revere and honor God and live a life of glad submission underneath him. But here it's something that is to be shown. It says show it to them. So simply put, we are to honor and revere those in our household, give them the respect that is due, but we show our godliness as well as we do those very things. So this here is an embracing of our task of godliness, what God calls of us. We embrace the task to be godly 
and at the same time to show our godliness to others. So let me ask you guys a question. Your definition of godliness. Does it include taking care of the disadvantaged? Because here it's inherent in Paul's definition, in God's definition of godliness. It is something that we are to show. And in the showing, we grow in godliness. Or that is very much godliness. I'm sure most of us probably think of the word godliness uh, and our growth in it as like reading the Bible, praying, fasting. Those are good things, attending church. But when you think of what it means to be a strong Christian, for example... Does taking care of the disadvantaged even fit in there? And to bring it even closer to home, taking care of the disadvantaged in your own home. Is this something that you labor towards? So husband, when your wife is trying to care for the disadvantaged in her family, which is your family, is this something you praise your wife for? Wife, is this something you praise your husband for and encourage him towards? Because according to this, this is godliness to show it, to care for, to honor, respect those who are disadvantaged in your family. I mean, this, this, the fact that uh, taking care of widows is inherent in the definition of godliness uh, hit me in a new way. Where I was reading this, this, this section here, you know, you're looking at basically 14 verses on how to care for widows. I mean, God found it so important that the, for the church to know that he gave us 14 straight verses on how to care for widows. I mean, that's really unique. But not only that, I mean, go ahead and turn to John chapter 19, verse 27. Go ahead and turn there. The New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So you can turn to John. 19 verse 27 this is a chapter that speaks of jesus's crucifixion you have his last words there and then if you just look at what john is writing you can see that his third to last words are this when jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he now he's hanging on the cross by the way he's bleeding dying When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He's talking to John. Or he's referring to John as the son. Then he said to the disciple, that is John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now, of all the things that that Jesus himself, the God of the universe, could have drawn our attention to, like how the God man could die. Like how he maybe upholds the universe with the power of his word, even in death. And then maybe his own very own feelings as he was hanging there on the cross. Jesus wants us to know that he loved his own mother. By making sure that she was provided for. Interesting, isn't it? And then he he draws our attention to John, that John was to treat Mary like his very own mother. And then, of course, Mary was to treat John like her very own son. I mean, it's fascinating that here, as John is writing his gospel, we know that there are other things that Jesus said on the cross. But what John is holding out here, if you just count backwards, you know, the third to last word that John is drawing our attention to is Jesus's godliness. As he cares tenderly for his mother. I mean, that is fascinating. 
Jesus is the example extraordinaire for godliness. He's showing godliness. He wants John to show godliness to Jesus' very own mother, to the disadvantaged, to take her into his family. And it is the godly who are to do the same. The second thing Paul wants Christians to do here is show honor to the widows in our very in your family by making a return. Making a return. Now, this is an interesting phrase. He doesn't call us merely to give. He doesn't call us merely to love, but he calls us to return. He calls us to return, right? This is a repayment. But not only is it a repayment, it is a continuing repayment. So here we continue to repay out of which we have received. So here it's not only talking about honor as in give them the proper respect. It's also talking about financial stuff. Okay, so if we are today to follow Paul's commandment to Timothy and Timothy's supposed to command the congregation here, this has implications really. Now really the category at large is wanting to care for them. It presumes that financially they are in need here. Now some of us here are allergic to any hint of duty or obligation. But not Paul, not Timothy. This here is a godly understanding of obligation. And out of that, Timothy is supposed to, uh, out of what he's received, he's supposed to give back, make a return. All those ladies, all the, all the guys are supposed to make a return to their parents. You know, perhaps one reason why many of us are not so good at giving back is because uh, we youngins are the ones who struggle with memory loss. So we forget so much of what's been given to us. Or maybe we just haven't lived so much life so we don't even know what our blessings are. Now I know some of you guys, you look back at your upbringing and you recognize that it is bad. Without doubt, you look at your upbringing and you know, okay, so there wasn't really much of any payment so from which I can repay. And that's difficult. And I don't pretend to know all of the intricacies of your life or to know all of the solutions or necessarily when it comes to practical stuff, what might be wise for your family um, and what it looks like to pay back. So, for example, if a parent is struggling with drug abuse, you know, it might not be so helpful to pay back with pure cash, right? That, That might not be a wise thing to do, probably isn't a wise thing to do. Uh, But the good thing is, you can know what's wisest by looking to Scripture. And Christ doesn't only call us to love those who have loved us, but He calls us to actually love even our very own enemies, just as He did as He died on the cross to save sinners. So even we, uh, who might have come from, if you might have come from a bad background, and you find it really difficult to repay because you think hardly anything has been paid towards you, No obligation has been given towards you, though there should have been. Scripture calls you too to love just as Christ loved. Even as he loved sinners and gave himself to die on the cross. Now, when it comes to the financial obligation that we might have, you might not even have the cash to give a return. So if if you're not making a financial return, I don't think you are in sin there if you don't have the cash. 
or let's say some of the widows in your family might be uber rich they're you know making a return might not necessarily look like giving them a hundred dollar check a month but i want you to consider these areas as you think about how can you make a return consider financial return could you not skip drinking your chestnut praline latte for a couple weeks in order to take out your mother for a drink that could be a legitimate financial return and they might not even be in need of it but yet you know that communicates a lot of love because they've been giving and giving and giving and so here to return a mere drink actually says a lot more than we would think consider emotional return consider writing them a note of genuine thanksgiving no matter how bad of a parent you might think he or she was or were, surely there is something to thank them for. Even Pastor Rick, who is the former senior pastor here, who came from a very, very bad background, he had good things to say about his parents, who physically at one point in time wanted to kill him. And he still had something good to say about them on certain aspects. Consider spiritual return. Have they done anything, anything at all to do with you coming to Christ? If so, how about you encourage them? Even if that was, you brought me to church and I am thankful that you did that because it is there that I heard the gospel for the very first time. You know, you don't need to have been discipled every single night having family worship and family devotions to be able to simply just recognize, wow, God has worked in this particular way, in this thread throughout history to bring me to know him. And you know what? That started when you brought me to church and I heard the gospel. Thank them for that. Consider a phys- physical return. How about asking if they need anything done around the house? I'm guessing most of your parents did not charge you rent as a baby. So maybe you do have something to repay them for. And to make it even more uncomfortable, have you ever considered that one day you might ask your parents to actually live with you. Now, I'm not saying that uh, sending, sending a parent to an old folks home is necessarily in and of itself bad. Sometimes that actually can be really good depending what the needs are. Um, But as you make this transition for us youngins, as you make this transition here to filling in your adulthood shoes and your parents also make the transition um, towards being more and more dependent. uh, Have you ever considered that that dependence is really supposed to look like them relying on you. Seems to be what scripture calls us. So as you consider these things, remember the purpose. It's not so that you might feel good. It's not so that they might feel good and even have their expectations met. That's not ultimate here. If you look at the verse, these doing these two things pleases God. Look there in verse, verse 4. It says, For... This is the reason why you're going to do these two things for this pleases God. So here we got a picture of God, God who cares for the sojourner, for the alien, for the widow, the fatherless. Here he delights in seeing his children do the exact same thing that he does. Caring for the helpless. He delights in seeing his children do the same thing. You know where we see God's care and his love for the helpless most clearly in Scripture? We see it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the climax of God giving himself, exhausting himself for the helpless. 
So God, according to scripture, he creates man to be in a relationship with him as he is uh, the source. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, it says uh, that we all are children of the one God. That doesn't mean that we're all saved, but we're all we all come from him, offspring of his. But the thing is, is man would rather not have God as their father naturally. And so what Adam and Eve did is they said, "Okay, you know, God is father. But I think I'm going to draw my own bounds for what is good and what is right. And God, though he loved them and wanted them to be in a relationship with him, man rebelled and helplessly uh, they spun out of control, giving themselves to sin. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins. That's helplessness. But the Bible also said, but God being rich in mercy in love and grace, he did something about it. Like any father, good father would. And he moves to save. And he just does so in Christ. He knows that his creation, the people he's created have, are spinning out of control, but yet he enters into their situation though they deserve condemnation and he saves them he recognizes helplessness so he sends jesus christ to bear the wrath that we deserve to die on the cross for sins and on that cross he shows that all of those who are helpless who cannot work to get back into salvation they can trust in Jesus' work. And so he saves. And he calls all to repent and believe. Not work on your own, but trust in my great work. Trust in me. Be dependent upon me like you were when I created you. That's where we see God's love clearly. How he helps the helpless. So he calls us to, to help the helpless as well. Um, you see there the harsh rebuke for those who don't love as he loves do you see that there i mean christians here are supposed to understand this gospel and love out of the gospel we receive love and love out of the love that we've received but what happens to those who don't who aren't walking in the father's footsteps what do we make of them look at verses seven and eight those who do what God calls of us are without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We see similar sentiment in John. He says, if you aren't loving the brothers and claim to love God, you don't know God. It's similar here. If we don't care for our relatives and members of our household, that's what do we make of the so-called faith. He says we're worse than an unbeliever. The sentiment behind this can be put this way. Are we Christians who have Christ as Savior, who say that we receive love? Are we Christians to despise those whom even pagans honor? Are we Christians to despise those whom even pagans honor? Basically, if the non-Christian gets this, how can we Christians not? Friends, strive to show godliness to your family members and make a return. And this pleases God. That's point number one. Point number two, we switch back here. Paul switches back to the church's responsibility in caring for widows. This is verses 9 to 16. This here is the driving reason why Paul wrote this uh, section here. He wants the church to take up the responsibility with the right people. With the right widows. That's why he addresses the need for families to take care of their own first 
so that the church could care for those who are truly widows. Look there at verse 16. This is a summary. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that they may care for those who are truly widows. So 9 to 16, in 9 to 16, there are qualifications for who could be enrolled, as it says in the early verses there. Paul says, look, enroll certain people. Um, And the church would enroll these needy folks that they would be able to honor them and support them even in their daily needs. Look there in verses 9 to 10. Part of the qualification, 60 years plus. So at this age in general, most widows aren't going to be wanting to get remarried. Uh, so he says, look, they can be on the list. A, a one-man woman. So in my opinion, this means, this does, sorry, this does not mean that she must have only been married once. That's not what it means. Rather, it means that she must have been faithful in her marriage or even marriages. Let's say if her husband dies and then she remarries a Christian, she has to be faithful in those, uh, in those spheres there, in both of those marriages. And we see very soon that Paul actually encourages Christian widows in certain circumstances to remarry. He says it's a good thing. They're supposed to be, uh, have a reputation for good works. It says brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, or basically at the, saint, the Christian service, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. So here's basically godliness in commonplace situations. This uh, widow is to be known for her godliness. In verse 5, it kind of goes into that more detail. She who, is a tr- see, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. And she shows this, she evidences her hope in godliness by continuing in supplications and prayers night and day. You can contrast that with, let's say, uh, the self-indulgent widow, it says, after verse 5, given over to serving herself and her passions as opposed to God. You know, as we apply this to our church, oftentimes, and with good intentions, the church, uh, people expect the church to serve everyone equally without qualifications, let's say, for widows. But according to this passage, it says qualifications are actually necessary. Look at 11. He says, refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. It just continues on with the qualification. Now, that verse actually needs a lot of explanation. Some read this and they think that the problem is the fact that these young widows will want to remarry. So therefore, remarrying is absolutely out of the question. But that's not the issue here. The problem is that their desires and their lack of ability to control them leads them to marry non-Christians. It leads them to marry non-Christians. That's what's implied. They desire marriage so bad that they say, okay, forget what God wants, just like Adam and Eve did. Forget what God wants. I'm going to go serve my own desires. And it helps us to look at another passage Paul wrote from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. You can turn there, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. In this passage, he actually says that, hey, if you're a widow, it's okay to remarry. It is an okay option. This is what it says. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free. She's free. She's free to be, to be married to whom she wishes. 
only in the Lord. So their remarriage for the widow is okay with the condition that the man be a Christian. That's what it means when it says only in the Lord. So what is not okay is remarrying someone who doesn't believe. That would not be okay. Going back to 1 Timothy 5.11, a woman serving her own desires, Paul says, would be drawn away from Christ. She's marrying a non-Christian, drawing away from Christ. It's why they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. They say, forget God, I'm going to live for self. So again, let me repeat this. Remarrying for the widow is not the problem. The problem for this young widow that Paul has in mind is that, is that uh, she's going to remarry a non-Christian. So in the bigger flow of the argument, Paul wants the church to support widows who have proven themselves to be godly, to be mature in the Christian faith. And naturally so, you know, if we're going to help out widows here in this congregation or in any congregation, we want to know if the woman has shown herself to be a good steward of her God-given time and her God-given money and her godliness. Paul was familiar with widows who seemed to have fallen into sin. Look there in verse 13. So I would have, or it says, uh, these, these folks would learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So it seems like here that the church is enabling people to live in their sin. They say, hey, you know, free money, I can go and do whatever I want to. And the church, therefore, is not to say, yeah, free money for everybody who signs up on our widow's list. He says, no, there are qualifications here. Um, So if if the younger widows were not to be enrolled, what were they to do? So if you consider yourself a younger widow here, what ought you to do? Look there in verses 14 and 15. So I would have younger widows remarry or marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. In other words, basically be godly so Satan has no opportunity to drag you down. He says, for some have already strayed after Satan. He basically says, look, follow in the more mature widow's footsteps. Show your godliness in the commonplace. Again, thinking about this as a church here, we have wonderful opportunity to love as Jesus loved. Now, some churches have all the glitz and glam of programs where they're taking care of their widows. Their ministries might be our entire yearly budget. But us, you know, we're an average-sized American church, under 100 people, or average. What that means is we don't have much means. But we don't need financial means to successfully love one another, right? Financial means would be great. So one day, it'd be awesome to start uh, a benevolence fund. Uh, whereby you, if you ever find yourself in a hard split place, particularly the widows and the disadvantaged, you come to the church and we would be able to help you. That would be fantastic. Um, And we hope that God would provide us an opportunity. But as we wait, you know what we have that big churches don't have? We have opportunity to honor and know one another as family. So thinking about here the opportunity for intimacy, let me ask you some questions. Do you take advantage of this intimacy? If you look around here, do you even know who the widows are in the congregation? Even if they have family who can care for them, how can you care for them? Or how can we as a church care for them? 
let's say a widow has a job. How might you be able to assist them financially? Even more fundamentally, is there even any affection and desire to see the widows in our congregation as mothers? Is there any affection at all? Is there any desire to develop an awareness of who these women are? Because they too have lived a life, oftentimes of great difficulty. Is there any affection here in this particular family? How's that diagnostic going? I know for, for a lot of you, this may be the first time you've ever thought about this. Um, and naturally so, because you're making the transition from being a dependent on your parents to now being an independent. And in some ways, you're still filling out the shoes of adulthood, right? And this is a great opportunity to exercise care and love for your adopted mothers, your adopted grandmothers, your fathers, your brothers, and your sisters. It just requires you to do something about it. So let me encourage you, us youngins, get together as, let's get together as a church or in small groups to strategically think about how we can particularly help and aid those who are disadvantaged in our congregation. Or even just help out others in the same way that we would a mother, a father, a brother, or sister. So if you guys lead a small group, uh, let me encourage you guys, or as you guys are gathering small groups, let me encourage you guys to think strategically here about how we can love some of these folks. Now, speaking to the widows, those who've been divorced, or the older members in general, uh, you know that some of the younger folks, they genuinely want to help out. We just might not know exactly how to do that. So please let the young folks know how we can help. Seriously, if you need furniture moved, let us know. If you need a ride to the grocery store, let us know. If you aren't feeling well and your family isn't able to take you, take you to the doctor, let us know. If you need a ride to church, let us know. If you need to paint your house, rake your leaves, buy you lunch because you just would love to hang out with someone. If you want us to pray for you, please let us know how to do that. That is what the family does and that, by God's grace, is what this family will strive to do. Now, I know some of you think, I don't need any stinking help. Or you might think, I don't want to be a burden to these people. You know, maybe you just feel bad. So there you got pride, relying on, you're not going to rely on anybody's help. Uh, And then maybe you're a bit self-conscious, thinking that you don't want to be a burden to other people. Um, Well, Jesus has something to say to you. If you think, I don't want to be a burden... You know, frankly, I don't know how you live the Christian life. Because a Christian, by definition, is one who has a burden that only one person can take care of, ultimately. The salvation burden, the burden, really, of sins that Christ comes along to take away. I mean, how is anyone saved apart from acknowledging that the burden of sin is too great to take care of it on your own? That's why he provides us Christ to die on the cross to save us from this burden of sin. And then once we are saved, he puts us into a family to bear your load. That's biblical here. Galatians 6 two: bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It is a glorious thing here to be open and honest about your need. Because it puts you right back. 
to Adam and Eve's position in the garden. Completely free to be dependent on God and all that the Lord has given to them. So if you struggle with feeling like you're a burden, you don't want to let your your needs be known, or if you struggle with pride and say, I ain't going to let anybody know my needs here, here, look to the gospel, because that informs how we ought to grow together as a family. Help us younger folks out. Give us opportunities to serve. Just like a parent would provide opportunities for their children to serve. Not letting us know, in some ways, robs us of an opportunity to grow in godliness. Not letting us know robs us young folks of opportunities to grow in godliness. And you young folks, man, how awesome would it be if we took the initiative here in this church to ask one another how we can be helping regularly. Particularly, it's you, it's, it's us young folks going to the older, maybe the disadvantaged, and seeking out, are there ways particularly that I can help you? And I'm going to bring my friend and two of us on a a weekend in December. We're going to do anything you want us to for four hours. Rake your leaves, move your furniture, paint, put the trimming on. Anything you want to do, we want to help you do that. Can you imagine the effect that that would have on the neighbors? They might look at the young folks and say, what's Robert, who's from Hungary, hanging around with someone from Costa Rica who's 75 years old? Marissa, for example. And those neighbors say, well, okay, you guys are a different culture, a different generation, but yet two people are coming to go and hang out here. They want to get to know you. They're taking you out for ice cream, going to to have lunch together. That is really a unique community. That's supposed to happen, according to Jesus, as the church displays his glorious character. As God gives himself to helping others, so we too here in this congregation are to give ourselves to doing the exact same thing. So I pray that uh, over time we would learn, learn to do these things, grow in skill, grow in knowledge, and that us young folks would be able to carry these things out, not um, or as a community, but then also as individuals taking care of our very own family members. It is true that in this culture, we tend to think of church as a place to get serviced as 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 opposed to a place where there are familial obligations. But the only way we're able to overcome this is to take our cues from the word of God and not from the shifting culture. Just as we are to care for our own family, particularly for the disadvantaged, so the church is to care for the widows who are truly widows, widows indeed. And in so doing, we walk in the same footsteps of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who on the cross gave us an example of what it looked like to care for his own mother. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are our Father. And you are who you are. We know that if our Father were an imperfect God, then we wouldn't know what to do. Because the goal of everything is for us to grow in godliness and to exalt Christ. So Lord, we praise you for being our perfect Lord. We praise you, Christ, for being the perfect Lord. And we praise you, Father, for being the perfect Father. And just as you love those who are disadvantaged, so, Lord, we pray that you would help us do the same. Lord, grow us in our family obligation. Recognizing what's ultimate is not necessarily our own family's wills, but your will. 
Help us, Lord, embrace this duty that you have called us to, to care and to give ourselves to loving those um, who find themselves in helpless situations or find themselves to be helpless in whatever situation. Lord, we thank you that you call us brothers. You give yourself, you exhaust yourself for us. Lord, teach us now to exhaust ourselves for other people. We praise you for dying on the cross as that shows us how far you go to love the helpless. In your name we pray, amen.